Guys, we have a new sponsor that I'm uber excited about because I've actually been on the market looking for one of these for a very long time. And if you're like me and you start researching and then you find all of these different ones, you don't know which one to buy. Well, that's me. And then I just don't buy any of them. So we got hooked up with a company and they're called Air Doctor. It's an ultra HEPA filter. So this is a filter that's 100 times more effective than ordinary HEPA filters. And it's able to capture 100% of airborne allergens and pollutants. So what is that? Well, it's dust and pollen, it's mold spores, it's cigarette smoke, it's pet hair and dander, which thank goodness for me because I have a very cute dog, but the best thing that she knows how to do is shed and it gets everywhere. What I like to do is have Air Doctor in my bedroom so it's filtering out all of these allergens and filtering out all of these germs while I am asleep. The other great thing about Air Doctor's Ultra HEPA filter is that it captures germs and helps reduce airborne germs bacteria, and viruses from up to 99.99%. Isn't that crazy? 99.99% of tested viruses and bacteria air doctor captures. Outside of that, you guys, they're giving you a huge discount. So this is one of the biggest discounts that we've done, and I'm super pumped about it. So if you use this link, bit.ly slash TSWL, A-I-R-D-O-C. And I'll do it one more time because I know it can be a little confusing. B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-S-W-L-A-I-R-D-O-C. And you save $300. That's right. Isn't that crazy? $300. So the retail price normally is $629 for the Air Doctor HEPA filter. However, with this link, make sure you use that. Save this money. My goodness. Final price is $329 plus shipping. Let me know what you guys think. Let me know how you feel. It helps with allergies. It helps with pet dander. It helps with cigarette smoke. And honestly, even if you live in a place where someone used to smoke cigarettes, it's still there. You want this air doctor to keep you healthy and sane and thriving. I wanted to talk to you guys about our new sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Now they're doing testosterone tests where I find this really easy because it's uncomplicated. They can send it directly to your door. It's in discreet packaging. So nobody knows you can collect your sample. You get to review your results. And then from there, a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone and you get a prescription if you need. So what's really great about this is that you're able to check where your hormones are at. And I know for a lot of us out there, including women, it's really great to know where your testosterone levels are and for men as well. The first test that you get is your free testosterone. And that's the first biomarker that they test for. And why you want to know this is because your body uses it to produce sperm, maintain a healthy sex drive, maintain muscle strength and mass and produce red blood cells, which is absolutely important. So you guys, check them out. Get your testosterone checked. Super easy. Don't have to go to the doctor. Plus, we're quarantined right now. So you need to stay home. This is a really easy way to do it. Head over to www.trylgc.com slash wildlove. I'll say that again for you. It's www.trylgc.com slash wildlove. And you get to save 20% off. Hey, Wednesday. We're back. We're back, Whitney, and we have such a special guest today. I've been really looking forward um, to having her on. We haven't had a guest in quite a few episodes, maybe like three or four. So we're bringing it back and we're starting it off with a bang. I mean, starting it off with a bang. We have Dr. Alexandra Solomon with us. She is one of the most trusted voices in the world of relationships. She has a totally bomb-ass social media following. She has a book. She has an e-course. We're going to get into it. Dr. Alexandra Solomon, welcome to True Sex and Wild Love. I'm so glad to be with both of you. What a thrill. I'm so glad you're here. And I think it's going to be so cool, Whitney, being a relationship coach and you um, having your background and expertise in relationships because our... Whitney, is it just me? I feel like our listeners are just like, after the pandemic, like, how do I even relate to other people? <laughs> it's so true. They're like, what is going on? We, we changed our lives over the last year and now we have to change it in some other form or fashion. And humans don't really like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Salman, what is 
relational self-awareness and how can it help people right now as we're so rusty at relating? I think it's a wonderful place for us to start. You're <sighs> right. We did the, you know, it was like, okay, you know, slow our lives down, make our lives really small. Okay. All right. We can do that. All right. Got it. Wait, now what? Open our lives back up again. <laughs> it is. It's very, you know, I think that for as hard as it was to shrink our worlds down, um, it's also hard to open them back up again. Even, you know, I think there's an urge to be like, it was quote unquote bad to be quarantined and it's good to be out in the world. We, we, we still want to put those good, bad labels on stuff. But the fact of the matter, it's just change that's difficult. You know, it's just change. Change it's is really... always difficult, even if it's positive, right? That's right. That's right. So what we can do is we can bring relational self-awareness to this chapter of the pandemic story. And relational self-awareness is an ongoing, curious and compassionate relationship that we cultivate with ourselves because the relationship Mm. between me and me is the template and the foundation from which all of my relationships flow. And so you know, I wear a lot of different, as, as both of you, I wear a lot of different professional hats. Sometimes I'm a professor, sometimes I'm a writer, sometimes I'm a therapist. But the thing that is steady throughout all of those roles that I play is I'm always helping us move more deeply into understanding who we are in the context of our most important relationships. And that's relational self-awareness. Okay, wait. So relational self-awareness is knowing and working on the fact that your relationship with yourself is your foundation for all your other relationships. Yep. Bingo. Okay. I all right. Now like using relational self-awareness to move back into relating to other people after being so isolated, some of us. You know, the um I was just talking to the sex researcher and the sex educator. Michelle Hope. And Alexander, one of the things that she said, we were talking on the phone, just having a girlfriendy FaceTime. And she was like, I really feel like what's happening right now with us trying to quote, go back unquote to our lives is it's like somebody opened up a fire hydrant (laughs) and like life and expectations and relationships and pent up energy and everything traffic, everything is just coming out at us like like this huge, like uncontrolled flow of water from a fire hydrant. And some of us are like reveling in it and some of us are drowning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I was like, that really yeah. describes <laughs> it. That's what so is interesting. going on, Pra? Right? Mm-hmm. Whitney, what were you going to say? I I was just saying that was, that's so interesting to think about because you think about when we go into, or when things are opening back up, it's one thing here, you know, you have your relationships here, you have the traffic, you have maybe your job, but it's all happening at the very same time. How overwhelming can that be? That's right. That's right. And the thing that the, you know, this whole phrase of like going back to normal or getting back into life it's, it's really seductive and I think, frankly, inaccurate because we're not going back to anything. Like we, we are not who we used to be, right? We, we are now people who have survived a pandemic. And so I feel like that fire hose is in part a kind of collective defense against the grief and the reckoning and the integration of this chapter. Like it is just like, there are a lot of us, I think, who want to just put the last 15 months in a box and like wrap it up in duct tape and like sink it to the bottom of the ocean and just act like it didn't happen. And we know what happens with the shit that we try to put in a box and ignore and, uh, you know, just move on, forge ahead. So I'm a bit worried about this fire hose, though I completely agree. I mean, I, I see it, I feel it, it's tempting. And um, I'm a bit worried about what happens to us if we just like swing so strongly the other way. Right. Because yeah, I feel I'm in LA, which is like the land of happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I can feel sort of when I take the temperature, I can feel the pressure to just, as you said, Alexander, to just move on. Um, 
I think there's a lot of unprocessed grief and trauma. What, you know, how are we, how are we to integrate what happened to us? As you said, when we're under all this pressure to move forward and what happens if we don't Mm -hmm. integrate? Mm -hmm. I think one of the, and I'm curious for both of you, how this is feeling. I, I think that, um, I, I think part of it is just actually naming the the grief and the trauma and the the kind of challenges of this time because I think the worst case scenario is that we just have like a dissonance and we ignore it. Like the dissonance is, I think for a lot of us, it's like you know our minds are telling us like I'm vaccinated, the cases are down, the deaths are down, this is over, I'm safe, and so our minds are saying that. But the problem is that our bodies. Um, have been doing one thing and one thing only for the last 15 months, which is just keeping us alive, right? So our bodies, we know, um, you know, as Bessel van der Kolk's, like literally the book is called, our bodies keep the score, right? Our body and trauma Mm -hmm. and grief are embodied. So I think that we have these bodies with these nervous systems that have for 15 months been vigilant, careful, um, you know, attentive, focused on matters of life and death. And our minds are saying, no, no, it's okay now. It's okay. We have a vaccine or we're, you know, it's, we're, it's okay. But our bodies, I think, need more time. And so it's, I think our massive invitation individually is to just listen to these bodies of ours. Mm. Whitney, what is your body saying? (laughs) I mean, I could not agree more with that. I love that book, by the way. It's one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't. Um, Say it. the title again, Whit. Um, keeping, what is it? The Body Keeps the Score? Body Keeps the Score. So it's one yeah. of the really foundational books about um, just the science of trauma and how our bodies carry trauma. And it's really good. I find it a pretty easy read. It's really interesting. Like I feel like a topic like that can be really heavy. And it is, but it is very digestible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My body just shows trauma right away. You know what my first response is, is that if I'm during the pandemic, first I was sleeping so much and then I just couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. So one of my first responses in my body is that my body is like, we're not sleeping. And then that trips off a whole cascade effect of things. Mm-hmm. Also, also during the pandemic, like very little interest in sex, mm-hmm. right? My libido was like bottomed out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't yeah. sleeping well. Every time I exercised, this was probably because I had COVID and I had some long haul symptoms. Every time I exercised, like if I did five push ups, my body responded as if I had done 7,000 push-ups. I mean, Whitney heard me complaining about this for months. And I was like, Whitney, I'm not doing anything and I'm so much pain. But are these the kind of um, things that are linked to trauma, Alexandra? And you yes. too, Whitney, because you know this stuff. Yes, absolutely. I mean, sleep and sex are two... Two, you know, two aspects of our worlds, of ourselves that are just so sensitive to stress. Um, I remember hearing Justin Garcia. Oh, you know Justin Garcia. Yeah, of course. It may have been in conversation with you where he said that, you know, two antelopes, you know, won't have sex in front of a lion. <laughs> so like <laughs> evolutionarily speaking, it's really quite strategic that our bodies shut our libidos down when there is danger outside the door, when there is threat, when there is stress. And this has been just a year of like, you know, a a God awful mix of, um, of acute and chronic stress, right? It's like, there's ways like the the, the pandemic has been like this drumbeat in the background while also there've been like spikes of, you know, whatever, testing positive or being afraid of testing positive or somebody you love tested positive or your job is, um, you know, under, uh, is is threatened, or there's another yeah another kind of episode in this like collective racial reckoning. So it's like this chronic with these spikes of acute, and so it makes sense that our libidos have shut down. And the thing that I worry about far more than us having you know sort of a sexual dry spell or a sexual um, kind of just time of not being particularly interested is what I worry about more is the story we're at risk of attaching to that right like 
what's wrong with me that I don't want sex right now? What's wrong with you that you don't want sex right now? What's wrong with us that we aren't having a lot of sex right now? Like that's the thing that I think is, is far more at risk of getting us into trouble is the story we attach or the meaning we make about the really normative and understandable ebbs and flows in libido. What a great reframing, you know, for people who are listening, who no doubt have experienced a lot of trauma-related symptoms. I mean, even something like your hair and nails not growing, right? Mm. Like to get back to Justin Garcia's Mm. point and how we look at things in evolutionary biology, it's like your body shut down anything non-essential. So some women got in touch with me. Some people who menstruate got in touch with me and were like, what happened to my period? It's like your stress response is like, we have to run away from this lion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we do not need to be growing hair. We don't need to be growing nails. We don't need to be menstruating. Um, we don't need to be um, having sex. We just need to get through this chase. But the chase was like 15 months. Yeah. I feel like it's still going on. <laughs> But I love the idea of reframing it, Alexander, because so often we read our symptoms in total isolation or we pathologize ourselves. That's right. That's right. We do. Well, especially, I mean, as the two of you know more than just about anybody, especially around sex, right? We are so understandably, um, but profoundly afraid of being abnormal, of being weird, of being off, you know? And so I think for sure, um, we're at risk around sex of saying like, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with us. And I think that for couples, you know, anybody who's in partnership, who's listening where either one or both is struggling with this. I mean, it's, you know, desire discrepancies, as you know, are, are completely expectable in a longer term relationship. The question is really, how are you going to approach it as a couple? And I, of course, always want couples to approach it by being able to just name it, right? Just say like, I'm just not available in that way right now because the moment we say that, okay, well then what other ways, right? How else might we connect? We've got, and I want all couples to have multiple avenues into connection, not just relying solely on sex or one particular kind of sex. Like it's, I mean, my gosh, what a great chance to really, really work on sex as a buffet. Okay, so I'm not available for, you know, the full buffet, but what I would love is this one item, you know, this one possibility, this one way of, of having our bodies be connected and, um, and feel good together. I love that. And I feel like couples don't, they don't have that idea, right? Because we're so focused on penetrative sex. And so when you talk about broadening the definition of sex, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch people not have ever thought of that before. Oh, that means we can still be intimate in certain ways, but it doesn't have to be this one specific way. Mm-hmm. It's such, I think it's, I mean, it's such a trap of heterosexuality, right? It's like oh the fact God. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, people are like, if we're not having intercourse, we're not having sex. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Alexander, you wrote something about the power of sex, which I'd love you to talk about more, especially in the context of like, I'm sure you and Whitney could really give people a long list of things that can go on this menu. But you say the power of sex, you've written, it's a gateway to the deepest longings we can experience as human beings for specialness, for connection, for power, for pleasure, for comfort, for validation, for growth, for healing. And then you say that you want to ask people, you want people to ask themselves three questions. Why am I having sex? What turns me on? And how did I learn about sex? (laughs) I do. I do want all of those things. Wait, you guys, what's on the menu when like, I don't want to have intercourse. Maybe I don't want to have any kind of sex that, is the traditional definition of it. I you're both experts on this. What what are my other options that that I'm putting out there for my partner and myself? Go ahead, Alexandra. Yeah, well, so if we're talking about if we're talking about a heterosexual couple, I I feel like there is actually a lot of um I think one, I mean, it makes me think about how very often in sex therapy, right? People go to sex therapy because somebody's, you know, somebody's not getting hard enough, fast enough, or they're getting too hard, too fast. Or they're coming too fast. Or they're not coming fast enough. Like there's all these kind of like very 
concrete things that take a couple into sex therapy or these very, very like concrete, you know, sort of quote unquote sexual problems that have so much to do with like who's coming when and who's hard when and who's wet when, you know, like all these kind of like things that are just Mm. so utilitarian and so linear and where it's again, this like fear of deviating from the norm. And so very often in sex therapy, what gets taken off the table right away is penetrative sex. Okay. So we're not doing that. What are we doing? Well, we're doing mindful touch. We're doing exploratory touch. We're doing present-minded um, giving and receiving of touch, you know? So there's, I love that we don't, we don't have to, a couple doesn't have to wait until there's a problem to, to start to get a bit, um, a bit like sassy and subversive about, okay, who gave us this heterosexual script that like everything that happens before the penis goes in the vagina is foreplay. And its purpose is to get people hard enough and wet enough to have penetrative sex. Like just deconstructing that whole thing, I think is so permission giving and doesn't, you don't have to wait until you have a sexual problem. But I will guarantee that when, if you do have a sexual problem and you go to sex therapy, the first thing your sex therapist is going to do is kind of, break all of that down and invite you into a broader menu anyways. So you may as well just do that now. <laughs> I, yeah. And I also find it's, it's fun to do that because I mean, it's one, it's pleasurable. So you could be doing a lot worse, but it's also really enjoyable just to see what else turns you on and what other sensations turns you on and what mm. your partner um, is really into too, outside of just the the normal script that we've all been fed. And, and I feel like it takes the pressure off too, right? Because as you said, Alexandra, it's, it's foreplay is who can get hardest, fast, fastest, and the wettest, the fastest, and then we have penetrative sex. And yeah. so if that takes if that's taken off the table, it takes the pressure off. And like, well, let's just see what's, what's here and what feels good. You know what it makes me think of is um, we, oh, it was a while ago now, it was, um, Todd, I've been married to Todd Solomon for almost 23 years, but we had our 29 year makeout anniversary. Um, <laughs> 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 oh my God, a makeout anniversary. Yes. We, and it was, um, yeah, we had this sort of 29 year makeout anniversary. Oh, when was it? It was in April. So what are we in now? May. So beginning of April, we had our makeout anniversary. And so we, um, and it was like, you know, it was our first night of our first kiss. And so we just spent hours upon hours, like making out, right. Cause we were, you know, we were college, college freshmen. And so we, for our 29 year makeout anniversary, we did it. We like planned for a 29 minute makeout. And, um, and to Whitney's point, it was so fun. It was so <laughs> like, we, we had like moments in the day where we were like, Oh my God, this is like total drudgery. How are we going to get through it? Are we going to like it? What's it going to be like? And it was, you know, it just ended up being such a it was changing it up. It was playful. You know, it was a ritual. So um, by any means necessary to just kind of invite, uh, you know, something something that is silly, creative, um, and where there's no attachment to a particular outcome. Oh, so, you know, one of the things that I feel like is so brilliant about that is, I mean, a lot of sex therapists will say that kissing is the first thing to go right? Mm-hmm. I've heard many sex therapists say that um, when they're on this show or when I'm interviewing them for an article, they say, well, often in long-term relationships, kissing will go first. And there's something so great about how you just put it front and center and make mm-hmm. it into its own thing and appreciate it for what it is. I love that. Because <laughs> so it doesn't you... have to lead to anything. Right. Sorry, right. But- and do you guys find that you're kissing more now after that? Um, I don't know that it changed kissing. I mean, that kissing has stayed pretty, you know, has stayed really, really consistent in our repertoire. Um, I think you're exactly right, though, Wednesday, that I do think that it that it goes um, when couples are in trouble. And I think that it also, um, I think there's something really tricky right now for people around kissing in the pandemic. I have had lots of couples struggle with that where, um, you know, even though, right, like even though we live together, even though we share, you know, a kitchen, even though we share a bathroom, there's a way in which kissing just kind of has felt kind of icky for, for couples in ways that are so painful and so sad, um, Mm -hmm. during this pandemic, you know, in a way that like, isn't, again, it's the mind says, 
this is ridiculous. I share a bathroom with this person. I'm not anymore exposed by kissing them, but the body is like, oh my God, this is the easiest freaking way to transmit this. Mm. And so I've done some work with couples this year around just how to cultivate lots and lots of intimacy and closeness, even if kissing is is off the table right now, because you know, sadly, it's usually one person who feels like they're not available to kiss when the other one is, um, which makes it that much more, it'd be easier if both people were like, no, kissing's off the table till this pandemic is over or till we're vaccinated or whatever. But it oftentimes is one's not available for it. Okay. So then how do we protect, how do we protect your relationship from the fact that kissing's off the table right now? Wow. Mm-hmm. I would, I would love to hear more about that. How do you do it? What are the practices that, um, you would recommend? Mm, just lots of touch, other kinds of touch touching faces, you know, holding hands, showering together, dancing, right? How can we just feel close to each other um, while that's not available? Mm. You know, I wanted to just say, because we have a lot of queer listeners and when we talk about like a focus on penetrative sex and how sometimes that makes us rush past kissing or how kissing feels dangerous, um, I just want to acknowledge how like queer women have so many great <laughs> all so of the many things. great options on the menu and I love how when I talk to my queer women friends it's like penetration is one option among many but it's just an option right mm-hmm. it's like not not fetishized in the same way and I just wanted to go back and say like in addition to the pandemic making kissing seem scary for a lot of us, um, I just want to get back to that thing that like heterosexual women, we kind of miss out on a lot because of the script that intercourse is sex and everything else is foreplay. Like, no, (laughs) all that, all that stuff you like is sex. All that stuff you like is sex. Making out is sex. Feeling up is sex. Grinding is sex. Are you saying, Alexandra, that like taking a shower, we need to, we need to broaden the definition? Absolutely. Because, well, exactly what you're saying means sex is, um, sex is about like, how, how do we want to feel, right? What is it? What's the feeling we're looking for? What's the experience we're hoping to have? And maybe, penetration, whether, you know, no matter the genders of the bodies we're living in, maybe penetration, like entering something, entering a space is, is how we create the feeling we want to have. But my gosh, maybe not, right? What's the feeling that we're hoping to have? Do we hope to feel powerful? Do we hope to feel connected? Do we hope to feel like this is a respite from the, you know, world out there? Um, and I think that, uh, I, what I, one of the things I love, I mean, I mostly love deconstructing the heterosexual script because it, it's so orgasm promoting for women, right? It's very often like how we, how we help women become more orgasmic. But it's, I have found that it also is so permission giving for penis bodied people, right? Like, wait a minute, the whole world does not rest on what my penis is doing or not doing. So I think there's a way in which not that, I mean, I think part of the risk, I think as a woman is that I'm always looking at how can I sell this to men or how can I make something that's good for women, more palatable to men. So I don't want to fall down that trap, but I do think Mm. actually authentically deconstructing the script and inviting men to view their entire bodies as pleasure receiving and pleasure producing is actually really, really, really good for them. it's It's so important because like Whitney and I talk about this a lot. We're like, oh my God, when we fetishize intercourse, we're putting so much pressure on anybody with a penis. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Whitney, can you? Ma- I can't even go there of imagining <laughs> the per- like performance pressure. No. That, <laughs> that just sounds really unpleasant. Like I feel like I would struggle to. I would really struggle if I had that degree of pressure on me to perform. How does that feel fun or sexy? It just feels like pressure. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It takes the fun out of it. it. Takes the fun completely out of it because you're in your head the whole time. Yeah, that's so true. Right, and in, in, in this lifetime, I won't know what that would feel like in my body to have that kind of pressure. But yeah, it can't be. It can't be fun. I think that it's, um, you know, so often I, I, for women who are dating men, right? So often, 
I hear stories about, yeah, men who are just like really disconnected before, during, and after, you know, and, and women then who feel responsible, like, did I do something wrong? How do I need to like comfort you because you didn't get hard in the way you wanted to get hard? Like, it's just this whole weird setup where women are, you know, either worrying they've done something wrong or, you know, sort of like trying to soothe or comfort or invite men back into connection over a thing that really didn't have to be that way to begin with, right? Because she, she may not, if he's really committed to her vulva and her clitoris and, uh, you know, in ways that feel really good to her, then she may not actually really care what his penis is doing or not doing. I have a question. I mean, this seems like such a good pivot to your book taking sexy back. Can can you just, which is fantastic and everybody just run out and buy it if you feel like leaving your house or just <laughs> order it online or whatever works for you. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, your mission in that book? It's starting with the title. I just love the title, taking sexy back. And I thought of it mostly applying to those of us who identify as women, but we're talking about how relevant it is for men too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing with the title is, you know, we're taking this word sexy, which is usually an adjective, right? That's sort of a descriptor that I think a lot of women, especially have a fraught relationship with, like, am I sexy? Do I get to be sexy? In whose eyes am I sexy? And so we're taking this word and we're turning it into a noun. It's like a capitalized sexy and you're sexy rather than you're sexy, like you are sexy. It's your sexy and mm-hmm. your sexy is your sexual self. So it's really, the book is a journey. It's a, it's couples therapy between the reader and their sexual self. Like who is this part of me and what are its origin stories, right? What were the first, how did I learn about sex and what was I told and why was I told that? And then how did my sexuality unfold? And so it's, it's basically a journey in which we, we travel to different aspects of the sexual self and, um, this happened with both of my books. They're, they are books in which we, you know, I sort of offer something, use an example of how that looks in a lived example. And then, okay, so how does it look in your life? So there are throughout the book, there are reflection questions and exercises. Um, so the book is, is really designed to help a reader feel more connected to their sexual self. And then from that place, be clearer around their sexual boundaries, be clearer around asking for what they want and don't want, um, and and to feel more permission to just live peacefully in their bodies and and create experiences that that feel pleasurable and that leave them feeling good afterwards instead of meh or God forbid, terrible. Whitney, how often in your work, building on what Alexander just said, how often in your work, Whitney, do you come across women who think that being sexy means being doing something that makes other people think they are sexy? Oh gosh, it's it's everywhere. It's something. I mean, it's something that I even personally deal with. And we just had a a women's retreat in Costa Rica, and I would say that one hundred percent of the women there felt that way at some point in their life, if not, you know, at this point right now, even with their long-term partners or, you know, if they're single, it's just, it stretches across the board. Yeah. Like how often are you just walking down the street and you're like, I feel sexy because I like the way I feel and I Mm. like what I'm wearing and my body feels good. And I like the way I'm moving through the world. That doesn't happen often enough. I'm more like, I guess I'm sexy because of the way people are looking at me. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's right. That's right. I look good to take sexy back. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I need to take sexy back. <laughs> what, Alexander, what would you say to, let's talk about a woman in this case, somebody who identifies as a woman. What would you say to her if she came to you, I know, I know you wrote, had to write a whole book about it because it's so complicated, but can you break down for us? If a woman comes to you and says, all the, the only way I feel sexy is if other people seem to think I'm sexy. What, mm-hmm. What's going on there? And what are some early steps she can take? Such mm-hmm. a good question. I love that. I mean, I don't know. 
it's kind of personal. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, the, the first thing I would do is just um, really, really normalize that this is not a problem she's having because she is neurotic or she is codependent or she is, you know, weak. Like this is a, like she didn't ask for a patriarchal system that, you know, equates her worth based on how she appears in somebody else's eyes or how she's perceived in somebody else's eyes. Like she didn't create that system. She was socialized within that system. So she, of course, um, has learned how to regulate her sense of worthiness Mm. in the eyes of others. That's the first thing I would say is like regulate your sense of worthiness in the eyes of others. I like it. It sounds like a really good goal. It's a really good goal. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm 47. I'm not there yet. Maybe I'll get there when I'm 87. But I, but I the thing I've gotten better about is noticing when the bullshit's happening, right? I'm better at catching myself and I have better pathways back into my own sense of okayness. This has been coming up a lot lately. Um, On Instagram, I had put a sticker up a couple weeks ago about pandemic emergence, you know, and the kinds of anxieties that people are feeling. And I was just like, uh, it's so sad about the number of women who are saying part of my pandemic emergence social anxiety is I'm afraid of judgment about how my body has changed in the pandemic. I am, you know, thicker. I am softer. I am. And, um, and I, it, it, it broke my heart and I wrote a post then about kind of like, what if we just try to meet those anxieties with a big, big, big hug on these bodies that survived a pandemic, right? This is a body that has survived a pandemic. And, um, and can we remember at least to have some grace for what our bodies do and um, that at least can temper, you know, or confront or like, titrate that whole anxiety of how am I being perceived? What are people thinking of me? Am I beautiful? Am I sexy? Do I get to be, you know, all of that stuff that just is like the chatter in so many women's heads all the time. I just want to say that I'm hugging myself right now. So good. I'm hugging my body that got me through the pandemic. Every single person who's listening right now, hug your body, give your body a big hug right now for getting through the pandemic. Oh my God, it feels so good. Whitney, are you doing it? I am. I'm doing it. <laughs> it feels so good. Oh my God. It's it's really interesting to think, okay, what, even just outside of how my body looks or our body looks, it's like, what is your body capable of? And then <sighs> like having love for that specifically, because no one can necessarily reflect that back to you. It's more of a sense and more of a celebration of what you are actually capable of. Okay. Can we just stay there for a moment? Because that's right. I think that so often we think once I have a partner who accepts me, once I lose five pounds, once I, like we imagine that this is something, Mm -hmm. a place we can get to. Um, And it's unfortunately like even a really, really, really wonderful partner cannot love us into self-worth. Like it's so, in some ways it's so unfortunate, right? I'm sure there are so many people who are listening who if their partner would give anything to be able to wave a magic wand and, and help their partner stop worrying about their body or stop, you know, being so hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I am sure that some, I mean, I know I have a partner who like, he would love, you know, he would love that, right? He has, he has a, he has no, he has a, such a different relationship to my body than I do. I mean, he has so much more permission and gentleness and empathy and admiration and acceptance of my body than I do. And there are times when I can experience myself through his eyes. And it's really quite lovely, right? To relate to me the way he relates to me. Um, but it's, uh, unfortunately, um, it's, it's, it's an inside out kind of a journey, right? Of our own, our own relationship to ourselves. It's the inside out problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. My husband is always like, oh my God, your body is just amazing. But I'm always punishing it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, should go on a fast, mm-hmm. should mm-hmm. work out more, mm-hmm. shouldn't have this, shouldn't have that. And I mean, I did ballet for many years. Yeah. So it, it kind yeah, of like- It's old. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's great. Like 
I feel like maybe we should pivot to talk about your course because I feel like in your course, you actually teach women to see ourselves differently instead of what we're talking about, this like inside out, outside in conundrum where we can't see ourselves with as much admiration as our partners do or the world does. We can't see our good parts. Do you get into that um, in your course, Alexandra? And does the course grow out of the idea of taking sexy back? Mm. The course grows, so the course is called Intimate Relationships 101. And the course grows out of um, the course I've been teaching at Northwestern for, this is our 21st year teaching it. It's called Marriage 101, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships. And it's the most popular course on campus. And it's been featured in news stories all over the world um, because it's just unusual, right? It's like one of the very first kind of comprehensive relationship education classes. And it's still very rare for colleges to offer anything like what we're doing. And so over the years, when I've been talking to journalists or whatever, at cocktail parties, the thing I always have heard is like, I wish I could take the class or how can I take the class? And so I created uh, this this e-course and it is comprehensive foundational journey into relational and sexual self-awareness. And it's, mm-hmm. um, I call it marriage 101 for the grown and sexy because it really is, it's designed for, you know, my college, my college classes, you know, a class for college students, but it, but it keeps the essence of what I love so much about that class and just makes it for any of us. So you could be partnered, you could be single, you could be straight, you could be queer, you could be 25 or 65. And we've got students from all over the world who are already taking it. And it's been a, um, it's been so fun to have the class um, available to people. It's self-guided, take it when you want, pace you want. I'm in there all the time responding to comments and engaging with students and something doesn't land well. You know, we email or we hop on a call. I'm like very committed to my students having a good experience in this, in this e-course. Wow. That sounds incredible. I mean, what a great moment, right? Like we're getting vaccinated. We're feeling maybe some of us, some of our listeners are like, I'm vaccinated. I'm more comfortable with dating and having new mm-hmm. sexual partners. And this, I just feel like, first of all, I'm signing up for your course just because <laughs> you're one of my favorite experts and I always love learning from you and I always learn something. But I'm just thinking what a what great timing, you know, as we're sort of trying to figure out our next steps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having the support of that. Right. And like, not, it takes, it sounds like it takes the guesswork out of it. A hundred percent. That's right. That's right. A hundred percent. And it's, I do think, I mean, I do think that coming out of this pandemic, I think there's, you know, as, as all like crises are turning points, right. They're turning points. So I do think that it's a time of reflection um, commitments, clarity, like what do I want in my life? Why do I want it in my life? And so I do think you're exactly right that for somebody who's beginning to date again or a couple who is like, all right, so that happened. <laughs> Where are we now? Where does this leave us? I think this course can be lovely to um, to kind of like, okay, so to check in. What's important? Why is it important? Where are we going? Um, so I love that idea of it being used now during this, this time of... Um, yeah, of, of integration. Mm. Integration. I, I just, I'm going to keep remembering that term because it sounds, it takes the scariness out of getting back to whatever. Mm-hmm. Integration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Whitney and I get this question all the time, Alexandra, and I wanted to ask you, Whitney was just telling me the other day, not to put words in your mouth, tell me if I'm saying this right, but we were saying that we get asked a lot. Um, how do I, how do I, <laughs> your dog wants to know Whitney or Alexandra's dog wants to know. <laughs> how are we supposed, to, what, what's your advice for people who are saying, okay, just your top of mind, um, big advice for somebody who says, I just need some words of advice about dealing with the way things are now. We've been on screens for 15 months. We've been relating through apps. We've been online. Like, how do I hype myself up 
for in-person dating and relating now if I'm feeling weird or scared or anxious about it. For, I think the first thing is your idea about just like have that word in your head, integration. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so non-judgmental. Yes, because when we're integrating, what we're remembering is integration is like, you know, integration means like we're weaving it, we're weaving something, we're we're pouring, you know, we've got like a, a can of navy blue paint and we're pouring in some white paint and we're stirring, we're pouring in white paint and we're stirring. So we're like, we're sort of like titrating something. And so it means that then you're right, like to go from, especially if you have been single and living alone during this time, and as you said, Wednesday, like on screens, um, you know, in your, in the fourth, in the walls of your home, it's just from a sensory perspective alone, it's a lot of input and like three dimensions to sit across the table from somebody in a cafe and have a beer or a cup of tea on the first date, like (laughs) just sensory wise. (laughs) What the hell is happening? Yeah. Yeah. So you do that and you say, my first date with you is going to be 42 minutes long. Not because I you know, am like, whatever, think I'm all that, or I'm not that interested just because my body can handle about 42 minutes of, you know, three-dimensional life. And then I'm going to go back to my apartment and to just trust that that's actually how we build, right? Like if I'm training for a marathon, I don't start with a 20 mile run. So we just, we can build and our social muscles will come back. Like that's the good thing. We are social creatures. We will like we will stretch and we will get there, but we're not going to get there by flooding ourselves by like a three hour long, you know, date, like just short and sweet, land the victory and then, you know, add a bit more. I love taking the pressure off those first dates or interactions or whatever they're going to be for people. I mean... Just the idea of being realistic about it. Um, Whitney gave me some good advice. Whitney, you said to me a few weeks ago, and we weren't recording, and I was like telling Whitney how I was kind of disappointed with LA. I just had some complaints. And Whitney, you said Wednesday, nobody is their best self right now. You're not going to get, you're not going to get the best cappuccino right now. You're not going to have the best experience driving. You're not going to get the best help in a, whatever, like a store that you show up to. You're not going to get the best tech support because everybody's been stretched in, even if they don't realize. Whitney, I have, <laughs> I've used that a hundred times. Oh, good. I'm glad it helped. <laughs> And I think it could, yeah, Mm -hmm. right. No, that was really good. Whitney, that like tilt things for me. I was like, nobody's going to be their best right now. So maybe I'm just saying, maybe if you're not going to be their best at dating and relating right now, that's okay. Mm, That's right. And it doesn't mean it's forever. And it doesn't mean that people suck. It just means that (laughs) everybody is rusty. (laughs) Yes. We're all rusty. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all in this together. Seriously. We're rusty at relating. So how do we sign up for your course, buy your book, find you on social media to get some support? Mm. And the easiest way. That's right. That's right. Well, I, yeah, we just, um, a couple months ago launched a, a redo of the website. So I love, I feel like our, my website now is, is much more, user-friendly and there's lots and lots of resources there. So dralexandrosolomon.com, there's articles, there are videos, there's links to the books and links to my social. My you know, Instagram is the place where I'm most active and it's just dr.alexandra.solomon, but there's a link through the website to that, a uh, link to the course for sure. Um, on the website, you can learn more and people can, of course, reach out to me with questions or concerns. And we have a scholarship program, a pay what you can scholarship program for, um, for BIPOC students. Um, that's wide open. And we are taking those, taking those scholarship applications on a rolling basis. Always, always, always. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm excited to sign up. I know. Seriously. I think we all need this. Yeah, we all need it. 
I'm so glad you could be with us here again, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. After um, this is like we tried recording with Dr. Alexandra <laughs> Solomon before, but this time it's gonna stick just yes. when we need just when we need it the most, Whitney. It was meant to be this time around. But selfishly, it just gives me more time with the two of you. So it's all good as far as There's I'm concerned. That I love, I love talking to you. You know how you know how a patient often says something when they're walking out the door where you're like, what you know, it's called doorknobbing, right, Alexandra? They're just okay. I'm gonna doorknob something right now. (laughs) You and I, because this is for next time. You and I have talked about aging. And in this podcast, you talked about your age today. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that topic. Mm. And I just want to honor that um, you have helped me in those discussions. And we need to have you back to talk about that and so much more. But I love that you just like put it out there today, Alexandra. Yep. Well, I feel, I, you know, I feel my body like leaning in, like, okay, let's do it. You know, one part of me is like leaning in, like, let's unpack it, aging, sexism, the whole thing. And one part of me is like, no, maybe not too scary, too much. (laughs) But (laughs) I'll do it. I'll do it for you. I'll do it with you for sure. Little by little wit. Let's do one on, let's do, let's do a podcast on, on sexuality and aging with Dr. Alexandra Solomon next time. Such a big topic. Yes. It is a hard yes for me. Juicy. Yeah. Come back for the juice, everybody. Alexandra, (laughs) I love you, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I love your work. I'm obsessed with your Instagram. And thank you for being here today. I know you helped me a lot. um, And I appreciate you so much right back at you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Wednesday. It was a treat. Thank you. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah. Leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.